building entire and just crushed and crumbled. I'm not sure if it's safe to report from my vantage point. I I really need to leave. So the fences informed me that the surrounding areas are, are in ruin. I I see some people running now. And the opinion of this reporter, if this nation or in fact the world ever needed heroes, that time is now. That time is now. episode of the Fire and Water Podcast. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, Rob Kelly. And Shag is off this week, but that's okay, because filling in for him for this special Thanksgiving episode is our pal, longtime nuclear sub, Sean Myers. Hi, Sean. Welcome to the Fire and Water Podcast. Thank you. I'm glad I get to talk to my super friend. <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, this is like your hat trick, because you, of course, you've been on the Film and Water Podcast, and you've been on MASHcast, and you're actually going to be on MASHcast again in a, in a couple of days. But this is your first appearance on this show, so this makes your third show that you've been uh, a guest on the network. Two more shows until I get my jacket. That's Yeah, that's right. We're, well, we're going to send you your secret decoder pin it's in, the, in the mail <laughs> yeah, very shortly. Yeah. Um, yeah, the reason we're calling this the special Thanksgiving episode is because, A, it's, it's running just a couple of days after Thanksgiving, but also this book in particular has, uh, to me, a Thanksgiving kind of element to it. This book is called Super Friends, The Revenge of the Super Foes. Uh, but, uh, Sean, I'm going to allow you, what the Helena Wayne is The Revenge of the Super Foes? The Revenge of the Super Foes is a paperback that came out in 1977 and features a great brand all-new story of the Superfoes. Now, the Superfoes were actually in the first two issues of the Super Friends comic book. Right. And this would have come out after that, and it is The Revenge of the Superfoes. It's a 9 by 9 paperback uh, for the great price of $2.95. <laughs> uh, heavy, heavy covers, uh, and then there's illustrations on every page, and... Quite a lengthy prose story to go along with it. It's 75 pages. That's exactly right. Now, the the information on this book is very hard to find. I never knew this book existed until I didn't have it as a kid or anything. Um, It wasn't until I started the Aquaman Shrine that I started collecting Aquaman stuff. And I was going on eBay and just trolling around. And I saw this book. I was like... What is what is Super Friends Avenger the Superfoes? And it's very unusual because the cover, which looks a little Kurt Schaffenberger-y, 
Mm-hmm. I don't think it is. I think it's somebody aping him. But it has, uh, and you'll see um, uh, scans of this, uh, courtesy Sean, uh, on the website, fireandwaterpodcast.com. But the logo, the Super Friends logo, is not the classic Super Friends logo. It looks like it was just done in-house. It's very, like, uh, just very loose, loosely drawn. So this is, like, it, it's very, there's very um, little information about it on the Internet. There are no scans of it. There's no credits anywhere, even on Amazon. I think it's safe to assume that this was written by E. Nelson Bridwell, who wrote the Super Friends comic book, because it, it there's and there's we'll get into that as why I think it is, but it seems like a safe bet that he wrote this, don't you assume? I initially assumed yes, but in my research for this, and yeah, it's really hard to find anything about this book online. Um, but now luckily I have every issue of the super friends comic. I absolutely love it. I think it's a fantastic read. Um, Me too. I never missed it as a kid. However, um, in the first issue, there's a text piece instead of the letters page. Cause they didn't have letters yet. Right. And in it, he talks about working on the super friends show, which at this point would have been the first season. And he mentions that, um, the first scripts sent to us made Wendy, Bruce Wayne's niece and absurdly had her openly referring to the caped crime fighter as uncle Bruce while he (laughs) introduced her to people who were not supposed to know that the Batman's identity as my niece. So he makes mention of this and tries to explain who and why Wendy and Marvin are part of the super friends. So I think it's not E Nelson Bridwell because on the first page, Wendy Harris is noted as the perky niece of the Batman. Hmm. That's, I, you know, I missed that entirely. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. How would Batman have a niece anyway? Exactly. Yeah. Um, so initially I thought it was E. Nelson Bridwell, um, but I don't know if it is. I don't know if it was anyone at DC. I, I don't know if it was someone who worked at Golden, who is the publisher of the book. Hmm. Yeah, I can't pick down the artwork either. Uh, the artwork is, I would say, and we'll get into this too, serviceable. I would say it's no more than that. There's some, there's some nice layouts here, but it's it's pretty coloring book kind of stand, kind of uh, look to it. Um, so yeah, I I think it's maybe a good hunch that maybe nobody at DC, in fact, did this. This might have been independent people. I mean, there's stuff about this that to me suggests E. Nelson Woodwell because it gets deep into the kind of the history of the characters, which was, of course, his his trademark because he knew all this stuff. But you're right. That little thing about Wendy being the niece, that's that's definitely not something Nelson Brittle would have done because that's uh, that would have violated all forms of continuity. I, I agree with what you say about the artwork. I do think there are some poses that are great and dynamic. Um, but overall, the artwork is the only thing that I'm disappointed with in this book. And it's tough for me to be objective because I love this book. I had this book as a kid. I bought it at Bookland, which was the local bookstore in York, Pennsylvania. I still have my copy that I had when I was a kid. Uh, it's well loved. Um, so even when I say that the artwork is serviceable, even that's with love, because as a kid, I just thought this was fantastic. Yes, it is a very charming story. And like I said, we will get to it in just one moment. This was released in both hardcover and softcover. Um, I always assumed that when I bought it that it was released sort of concurrently with the beginning of the Super Friends comic book because it talks about the Super Foes, which you just mentioned, where the first where the villains are the first two issues. But no, this was came out like at least a year later. Um, I can only assume that they hoped this would be a series that this would sell well enough that they could do a series of Super Friends books. But I guess I guess not because as far as we know, this is the only one that exists of its kind. 
I was going to say, I've trolled Super Friends sites on eBay and everything for years and years and years and years and years. And this is the only book like this that I've ever seen. Hmm. Okay. Well, there. Well, let's get right to it. So, so this is this is a, a full length, double length story. It's 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 a pro story with spot illustrations. So it said it opens with a Colonel Wilcox calls on the Super Friends at the Hall of Justice in Gotham City to investigate a series of robberies taking place all over the country in Gotham, Metropolis, New York, Philadelphia, and even the ocean. By the modus operandi of the crooks, the Super Friends recognize these robberies are the work of their old foes, the Penguin, the Toy Man, Poison Ivy, the Cheetah, and the Human Flying Fish. The Super Friends uh, superheroes in training, Marvin, Wendy, and Wonder Dog, ask to come along. Marvin accompanies Robin, Wendy gets to go with Superman, and Wonder Dog accompanies Wonder Woman. Batman flies to Gotham in his whirly bat and finds the penguin who sicks a flock of angry birds at him. Superman has similar trouble with the toy man who has trapped the man of steel in a room flooded with the red sunlight of Krypton, bringing Superman to his knees. Wonder Woman gets the drop on Cheetah only for the archvillain to command one of her male henchmen to slap cuffs on the amazing Amazon, rendering her temporarily powerless. The Cheetah then orders a herd of cats to attack. Robin and Marvin find Poison Ivy, but she uses her powers to imprison the boy Wonder in thick vines, rendering him immobile. Out on the ocean, Aquaman finds his finny friends assisting in the robbery of a millionaire's yacht. The Sea King wonders why they are doing this, and the human flying fish reveals that thanks to an invention by the toy man, he now can control sea life. As Aquaman gets closer, his finny friends turn to attack him. It looks like the super friends are in real trouble. With the assistance of Wendy, Marvin, and Wonder Dog, each of the super friends find a way to escape their certain dooms, but not before the super foes make their getaways. Superman, using his telescopic vision, tracks them to their meeting place. Wayne Manor? Wonder Woman arrives as well, and they send out a signal to the others telling them where to meet up. Inside Wayne Manor, the Penguin and the Toy Man are busy building some sort of death ray. Also installed are several devices built to monitor the outside of the house, manned by Poison Ivy, the Human Flying Fish, and Cheetah. The Super Friends decide to enter the house several different ways with Superman and Wonder Woman taking on the laser cannon, which they destroy. On the other floors, the heroes find the other foes. Batman fights Cheetah, Robin takes on the human flying fish, and Aquaman faces the Toy Man. Superman and Wonder Woman help the others, and Aquaman uses his mental powers on the human flying fish, telling him to drop his weapon. The Super Foes are arrested and carted off to jail. The Super Friends meet back at the Hall of Justice, and they thank Wendy, Marvin, and Wonder Dog for their assistance. As a way to show their gratitude, the Super Friends offer to cook a meal for their three charges. Batman prepares some salad, Aquaman some plant seafood, Wonder Woman bakes a cake, and Superman delivers the main course in honor of the Penguin, Cooked Goose. <laughs> so, uh, so, Sean, like, why do you love Revenge of the Super Froze so much? Well, I love it because that end meal is what I had on Thanksgiving a few days ago. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> but, but seriously, um, I love this. I think this is a perfectly constructed story. And not even just for kids, but for anyone. Um, I remember watching a Pixar DVD, Blu-ray, uh, and they talked about story and how there should be an act one, act two, act three. And this book is fantastic with that. I also think it's fantastic for anyone who isn't familiar with these characters at all, because as the story goes on, you get an origin of each of the super friends. That's see, that's the thing that leads me to think that this was the work of E. Nelson Birdwell is because it gets into the origins 
Uh, I mean, I guess most people know the origin of Batman and Superman at this point, but it gets into all of them. It has the bit where Wonder Woman, if she gets, uh, if a man slaps cuffs on her, she's rendered immobile. Like that's a kind of a deep cut of a Wonder Woman weakness. And uh, that's, it seems like something only E. Nelson Birdwell would know. Now, obviously whoever did write this was probably given some basic outlines of these characters, but I don't know. This just felt like an ENB story because again, it takes the time to talk about Superman and the red sun. And and there's even a a page where we see him rocketing from Krypton and stuff like that. I mean, it just feels like someone who is more familiar with these characters than your typical uh, assignment writer would have been. I agree. Um, And it's funny, like as we're talking now, I almost wonder if, the story itself was written by E. Nelson Bridwell, and just that first paragraph was slapped on by the people at Golden Books, maybe? I guess, you know, anything's possible. I mean, I'm sure that once whoever wrote it submitted it, then the publishers could do what they sort of wanted with it. Um, I do find it interesting that, you know, again, it's it's the, the return of the super foes, which was uh, presumably E. Nelson, e. Nelson Bridwell's idea of, of a team of villains to bring back and fight the super friends. And now in the comic book, they bring in five of their like sidekicks. Uh, and the, the, the sidekicks don't appear here. Now for anyone who's n- never seen super friends, number one, uh, the sidekicks that are brought in, there's something very interesting <laughs> about that particular, you know what I'm going to get to too is poison. Ivy has a sidekick in super friends. Number one named honeysuckle and honeysuckle wears a costume that even Frank Thorne would have been like, that's a little too skimpy. <laughs> and you're kind of amazed that it was in a children's comic book. I mean, it's it's basically like two leaves over uh, her naughty bits, and that's it. And I'm like, how did this pass muster in a comic book, a comic book, comics code approved book for children? Uh, but no, n- none of the sidekicks appear. It's just the five foes. But you could see that whoever was doing this wanted to kind of build these guys up as a team that could take on uh, the super friends. Now I have to argue that, you know, of all the villains to pull from for Aquaman, the human flying fish, that was really the one that you got. But you know, I guess beggars can't be choosers. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, and again, I love this book tremendously. However, the super foes are not the Legion of doom. <laughs> no, no, any team that has toy man and penguin on it. It's, that's a little, little top heavy, I would say. And I'm only saying this because you said it first. Of the super foes, the weakest is definitely the human flying fish. Yeah. Even as a kid, I had no idea who that person even was. I never heard of him. I never heard anything about him. His costume is – I'm very forgiving of costumes. His costume is god-awful. That's a jack acid costume, no doubt about it. So tell, tell me a little bit about human flying fish and its history with Aquaman. Well, see, that's the other amazing thing is that, again, this leads me to think that this was – well, again, I guess if whoever wrote this, let's pretend it's not E. Nelson Birdball. He had Super Friends number one and two to pull upon because by the time of Super Friends number one – uh, the Human Flying Fish had only appeared in like two stories. Okay. He, he had been introduced in the Ramona Fraden era of adventure comics that uh, when Aquaman was in that strip. And that was after, of course, he had been given the new origin and he was the son of a lighthouse keeper, all of which you'll be able to see in the Aquaman movie coming <laughs> December 21st. Um, but it was, that was when they realized he was more of a superhero and they started giving him 
uh, supervillains. And of course, it's funny to think human flying fish predates Black Mana and Ocean Master, mm. even though they are the two villains everybody knows again, coming in Aquaman the movie, opening December. Flying fish predates those guys, but he was basically he disappeared. He didn't. He never appeared in the Aquaman solo book as drawn by Nick Carty or Jim Aparo. So it was really took Bridwell to kind of rescue him from obscurity. Now, maybe he just felt like Black Man and Ocean Master were, like, too nasty or something because they were, they were abjectly killers. So maybe he felt the human flying fish was a more gentle villain. But yet in this very book, it mentions that the penguin is a cold-blooded murderer, which is shocking to me that they would even have that in a children's book. It's funny. In some ways, I think kids of the 70s, were a little bit tougher or exposed to a little bit more of, of a brutal. Th- I mean, you know, we, we played on playgrounds that were macadam. We, we didn't That's true. As a kid of the seventies, I can attest to that. That is true. Yes. <laughs> and I'm not disparaging kids today. I, I just think, and also where you were talking about honeysuckle in the, in the super friends comic book, um, like the leaves covering, I think those are more like, um, a mermaid seashells where they cover and it's a, a little bit more time where you didn't a more innocent time where you didn't have such a negative view of that kind of thing. I almost think that's the same thing with penguin. Like he's a killer, but he's a killer. Yeah, I get right. I mean, again, it is sort of a killer in a gentle way. I mean, I guess he's a killer in the same way he was a killer on the TV show. You know, I mean, yeah, we know he killed people. You never saw that though, or anything like that. I like the use of the uh, Batman's whirly bat. I always think that's a cool little little rig. It's something he doesn't get to use a whole lot, but I, I appreciate that. Um, I said I like the the recapping of all the origins. We actually even get to see Hippolyta carving the statue out of clay, which I think was a nice thing. The full page shots are pretty nice of all the the, the, the you know Wonder Woman and Superman. I like all that stuff. Again, the artwork it's it's okay, but it's you know I don't know. It's not it's it's a little on the dull side. There is a great. Okay, this is actually the one instance where it's actually the opposite of dull. Um, on page 14, uh, Cheetah is literally jumping out of a building, and there is a stack of her hench people who are making a tower to catch her. And, <laughs> let's see, one, two, three, four, five. So it's six people high. And then uh, at the bottom, there are, I don't know, maybe 10 people, and then a fewer and fewer and fewer as the tower goes up. And I, I love that illustration. I just think that's exciting. It is very strange. You know, it is like they are very devoted uh, to Cheetah, I will say. I like you see in the Invisible Jet, you see Wonder Dog standing there, too, along with, with Wonder Woman. I think it's really cute. And I, uh, we're, did he love putting his head out the window? Yeah, that's yeah. <laughs> we don't see that here, but I would assume so. He's a dog. I mean, why wouldn't he? Uh, I love... And the thing that really jumped out at me when I first bought this book is it fe- – again, there's the shot of Aquaman fighting his finny friends, which I enjoy quite a bit. Mm. But later on, when he gets the – when he turns the tables on the human flying fish, there's that scene where he literally pushes an entire yacht over basically just using his own strength, which I absolutely love because, I mean, in the mid-'70s, Aquaman was not presented like that. He was always kind of – they kind of scaled down his strength. I mean, uh, Steve Skeets was always having him knocked out by getting clubbed on the head and stuff. But here, he flips over an entire boat, which, again, is reminiscent of a scene from Aquaman the movie coming December 21st. But, I mean, I love that they gave him that moment. I mean, it's just him just pushing this thing all by himself. It's like, yeah, cool. I remember a former roommate of mine being flabbergasted when I told him how strong Aquaman is, that he would be 
bulletproof, he would be cannonball-proof, he would be missile-proof. Because of living in the ocean, his body would have to be that dense, that strong, that compact in order to survive that ocean depth, that pressure. Yeah, I, I, I dig that a lot. Um, I did find it very funny during the, the the climactic moments up in Wayne Manor where Batman gets the drop on Cheetah, and Cheetah just pulls a gun. <laughs> like that's it. Like that's that's the. Whole, I mean, again, that's another thing. I'm kind of shocked that they did that in a children's book, but I like that. That's Cheetah's plan. Like, we'll just get a gun. I'm just going to shoot Batman. Well, she was the precursor to Indiana Jones. Right. There. <laughs> Exactly right. Yeah. She's like, oh, what the hell? Just, just, just shoot him. Whatever. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think that was funny. Did am I remembering correctly? But uh, is it is it out of canon that the Hall of Justice is in Gotham? Wasn't it always in Metropolis on the show? I think they played fast and loose with that. I think in the show, I think it was in Metropolis. Yeah, I thought I thought I remember. I couldn't hear that Ted Knight, you know, narration in Metropolis. So I'm surprised that they put it in in. Uh, Gotham City, and I am do wondering how did all the villains find their way into Wayne Manor and Batman not know that? Well, like, it's funny because I looked and looked and looked, and I don't know that that's ever explained. No, like was huh? How did that happen? Like how did they? And I mean, they don't they don't surmise that any of the villains know who Batman is. So why are they even in Wayne Manor? Like the Penguin doesn't know who Batman really is. So the, that's a kind of a strange turn. And then not only do they get into Wayne Manor, but they're there long enough to install all these death traps. Like how long was Batman away from 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 the house? And they are they built a huge and I mean huge laser cannon. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's like, what, what, what the heck is all that about? But nevertheless, um, again, you get to see the Robin cycle, which, again, I appreciate. I think that's a cool ride. Um, I do – I like all the machinery that we see. The, you, you, they, they talk about the uh, the cannon. Did you notice on – there's a very weird – one little art hiccup. On page 53 of the book, it's 51 of the story, but I guess if you look at it as a, a series of, of scans, it's a 53 – it's page 53, but it's 51 in the book. All the super friends running into Wayne Manor. You see Aquaman. A, he's got yellow gloves, which is uh, usually just a coloring mistake because uh-huh. it's, it's it's not the Earth Two Aquaman. But he's also got like these yellow wings under his armpits, like Namor had. What is that about? I never noticed in all the years I've had this book since 1977. I never noticed that before. Yeah, he looks like in, when Namor had that uh, that blue and gold kind of jumpsuit that yep. he wore when he just wasn't in the little bathing trunks. I, I have to wonder, who, whoever was drawing this must have, did they confuse him with Namor for a minute? That's a very weird little detail to throw in. Well, I'm actually thinking they confused him with the human flying fitch. Oh, that's oh, that's true because the human flying fish has the same outfit. That's yeah. true. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, you're right. Um, I do like that sword that the human flying fish has. It's just that big spiky thing. That is and fantastic. They, they called a wicked-looking sword made from the snout of a swordfish. <laughs> that's that's that should have been that would be worth having a human flying fish figure for, so you could have that accessory. That's true. Yeah, I'm sure be Amigo. Uh, Aquaman was never a big seller for Amigo, so I guess the human flying fish was. A, there's no chance of that. He never appeared in the cartoon, which is again very strange. You would think, considering how many he was in the comic and he was in this this ancillary piece of merchandise but he never showed up in the show in any of the iterations right um one thing i do love i absolutely love about this story and i love about comics when it happens in general i love when heroes 
fight a villain that they are not normally associated with. I was just about to mention that. (laughs) Which happens in the story. Like, I love that Penguin goes up against Superman and Poison Ivy goes up against Wonder Woman. I love when there's a mismatch of heroes and villains. And you get that at the end when they're when they're like about all to be arrested. I mean, Robin has Penguin, but Batman has Toy Man. Superman has Cheetah. Wonder Woman has Poison Ivy. Yeah, I like that a lot. That's cool. I, I dig that. And then the second part I love is how they rescue each other. So Wonder Woman throws her tiara to rescue Aquaman from the bonds. And then Superman turns and takes Cheetah's gun out, which reminds me of the Justice League origin. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And again, it's. I was again thinking that uh, Poison Ivy never appeared in the cartoon either. No. Or the, or the or the Penguin. I knew they didn't have the rights to the Penguin, but uh, I I would think that again, Human Flying Fisher, Poison Ivy probably weren't you know sectioned off like that. I'm surprised Poison Ivy never made it because she is cinematic or telegenic because of her being able to control plants. And that still seems safe enough to be in a kid's cartoon. Yeah, yeah. I, I Again, I know they had some weird rights issues or whatever they could use or what they couldn't use. But, uh, but the, and the reason um, at the end, the reason this book is so beloved to me, and this was something that I wanted to talk about on the show, especially for the Thanksgiving show, is the final moment where the Super Friends cook <laughs> Wendy Marvin and Wonder Dog a meal. And there are there are thanksgiving like images mm-hmm. uh throughout comics i mean there's a, the the that norman rockwell that famous norman rockwell painting has been repurposed many times but this is the only instance i can think of in all of super friends history either the cartoon or the comic book where you see the super friends like sitting down to a meal together right, right. like i just lo- and there's this one single page of all of them around the table uh, except for wonder dog that i really Love it's and again it's it's not actually Thanksgiving it's just them giving teaching the giving the kids a meal but nevertheless I think of it as Thanksgiving because it's they're super friends and they're hanging out together for a holiday it's very charming I love that Aquaman they mention Aquaman's like no 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 these are not my finny friends I don't eat pals <laughs> thank you Aquaman they they go out of their way to say that it's seafood <laughs> well that makes sense yes oh no I wouldn't want Aquaman to eat his, eat his fish and I I love that the cake that Wonder Woman made is the Hall of Justice. She made a Hall of Justice cake. I would I would love a Hall of Justice cake. <laughs> well, that's the weird thing because there are two different cakes because there's the Hall of Justice cake, but she also talks about making a cake in the form of cheetah. I made a cake in the shape of a cheetah, Wonder Woman said with a smile, and to go with it, I molded ice cream into the shape of some of Toy Man's toys. But it doesn't say yeah, that- anything in the prose about the Hall of Justice cake. Right, and you see the the thing that she's holding, you see her standing behind yeah. Wendy. It looks like a big jello mold with like fruitcake chunks in it. It looks kind of horrible. And that doesn't look like Cheetah. No, it doesn't look like Cheetah at all. Again, we'll have this image on the website, which is fryingwaterpodcast.com. And then the final shot, you've got Robin with the cooked goose, and they're all about to eat it. And I don't know. It's just, it's very sweet. I mean, the, I, I mentioned this on, somebody asked the other day on Twitter, I forget who. I may have been, um, our pal Gregor Rujo, where he said, like, what was the thing that was there a gateway thing that got you into comics before comics? And I said it was the Super Friends because the Super I've been watching the Super Friends. I was two when it debuted, and I don't ever remember a time where I didn't watch the Super Friends. And so I have to think that that was really my first inkling into this world. And I just I don't know. I just loved everything about it. I love that these guys all hung out and were friends. And so this 
if I had had this book like you did, Sean, I would have loved it because, again, just seeing them all sharing a meal together, I just would have been like, oh, I want to be there. I want to be Marvin. I just want to sit there and just hang out with these cool people. One reason I like this book especially and the Super Friends comic is Wendy and Marvin are represented much better in this medium than they were on the first season of the show. You know, the first season of the show, they were really neutered just because of how children's television was, how you couldn't show violence, that kind of thing. Um, I really like this book because Wendy and Marvin legitimately saved the Super Friends, and Wonder Dog legitimately saved the Super Friends. Right. They all they all tag along, and but then they're the ones that help out. I said Marvin ends up untangling Robin from Poison Ivy's vines, and Wonder Dog dispenses, uh, disperses the cats that attack uh, Wonder Woman, and and Wendy helps out Superman with the, uh, the the red sun ray. Where are you? Where do you stand on the endless debate of Marvin and Wendy versus the Wonder Twins? I mean, we know how Chris Franklin stands. He hates Marvin with his every fiber of his being. It's funny. Technically, like if it comes down to it, if I'm forced to decide, I would say uh, Zan and Jaina and Gleek are my favorites. However, it's tough because. Any character, and I believe this, any character can be a great character if they are written in that way to be great. Wendy and Marvin, especially on the TV show, were never given that opportunity to be written to be great. I I just, I don't know. I, lo- I really like Wendy and Marvin. I'm willing to go to bat for them. I just think they haven't been represented well enough. Um, I know there's a new Wonder Twins comic book coming up with the Wonder imprint. And I hope that Wendy and Marvin guest star and get to be shown in a good light. I didn't know that that was a thing. I had no idea. That's coming up. And I, I can't wait. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Marvin was saddled with a very annoying voice. I have to admit that kind of high pinched thing. I mean, Lee Zan was played by Michael Bell. Right. You know, who was who was Plastic Man. He had a much smoother voice. I will give than that. I, I think I always liked Marvin and Wendy more than the Wonder Twins because I like that there was this is so oh my god even for this show this is very nerdy but uh, like like to me there was a really strong demarcation point between the super friends and their sidekicks <laughs> right. it, when when the wonder twins are kind of superheroes too you're like well are they part of the team or are they not as a kid that was very important to me to have that very clear line of like no 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 these are the kids in training and stuff and so um and it may also be the fact that um wendy and marvin are part of that drawing that wonderful alex toth drawing oh, oh yeah that you've seen of all the super friends and the wonder twins never got i mean of course, Alex Toth drew the Wonder Twins in, in very model sheets and things like that. But there is no, to my mind, one central image of the Super Friends as drawn by Alex Toth featuring the Wonder Twins as there are Marvin and Wendy. So to me, it's like when I think of the Super Friends, I think of that Alex Toth drawing right. and that has Wendy and Marvin in it. Right. And it's it's not Alex Toth, but uh, I'll plug another show maybe. Uh, so there's the Best of DC Digest number three, and that has – the Super Friends, the five Super Friends, it has Wendy, Marvin, Wonder Dog, Zan, Jaina, and Gleek, drawn by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise be his name. Praise be his name. Yes. And you said that's your favorite digest of all time, right? Or is it your favorite cover of all time? Is that what you said? It's my favorite cover of all time. Um, we'll get into this when I guest star on the show. I'm a little, <laughs> di- I, I'm a little bit disappointed with the digest, but that'll be the cliffhanger. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. I like how you invited yourself onto that show. It's very, uh, very cagey. Very that's good. my superpower. There you go. Again, it's and again. Look, there's another thing of the super friends palling around together because that's I, them sitting around reading comic books. Exactly. Who who wouldn't want to be there? I love it. 
Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, this is a very charming book. Um, I, I think it's it's really cute. It's a shame that they only did the one. Super Friends did veer off course. We know there was lots of Super Friends merchandise. There was a coloring book. There was all sorts of toys and things like that. But for whatever reason, this is the only the only sort of long form book like this that exists. Again, which is too bad because I think it's a fun story. I would have liked to have seen them do more and like get into like the the DC villains bench because as we know, the comic book. Started creating its own universe. I mean, the Guardians of the, the Guardians, the uh, Global Guardians showed up and that were created for that book, and it featured uh, guest appearances by like the Atom and the Green Arrow and Red Tornado. I mean, they really Nelson Bridwell took advantage of having the whole DC universe to pl- to to uh, plunder, and it would have been really cool if they had done more books like this. But I guess this just didn't sell terribly well or something. On the back cover, there are ads for other books there's the sesame there's sesame street and there's like a magic book and there's something called the the owl who loves sunshine so i mean i guess they were hoping you know this would be a start of something big but i guess not it would have been fantastic i i would have loved that yeah it's a it's a, it's a really charming book so and we will have lots of pages from it on the website fireandwaterpodcast.com like i said it's it, this is pull back the curtain a little bit this was something that every year i would post this image of the super friends having a meal on the Aquaman shrine for thanksgiving that's my yearly image and at some point a few years ago i got the idea that i wanted to talk about this for thanksgiving for the thanksgiving episode but i would come up and i knew i wanted to have you on Sean to talk about it because you're the biggest super friends fan that i know but every year I would think of it in like on like December 10th and I'd be like, damn it, you know, and then I would tell myself, well, ask Sean next year. And then I would remember again, December 3rd. I was like, eh. So this year, <laughs> this year I thought of it like in the middle of July and I was like, well, I don't care. I'm just going to ask Sean now. So luckily you were generous enough to say yes. And, you know, that way I knew if I mentioned it to someone else. You wouldn't forget. You wouldn't forget. I might forget, but you wouldn't forget. So now we're finally had a chance to do it, and I'm, I'm very glad I got a chance to talk to you about this because I said this is a really charming piece of Super Friends history that I think most people, even if they're fans of the Super Friends concept, don't know about. I agree. Yeah, it's fantastic. Um, I'm assuming people who are friends of the Super Friends show uh, already know about the Super Friends comic book, but I can't recommend the Super Friends comic enough. As, as much as I love the show Super Friends, and I do – I just think the comic is 10,000 times better. Yeah, I never missed an issue. Never missed one. I mean, isn't it kind of amazing that they took them, like, what, three years to start the comic book? The show started in 73, and the book didn't start until 76. Like, what were they? What was DC waiting for? Yeah, just that, that history is weird how the first season just hung around for years and years and years, and then in 73, and then the first new episodes after that was 1977, four years later. Yeah, that's very strange. There's a there's one little piece of trivia. I guess it's perfect to mention this on the Super Friends uh, Super Friends uh, episode is revealed in a an issue of Comic Book Artist, the magazine that Two Mars yeah. used to put out, that John B. Cook used to do. I love that magazine. I still have all my copies. And he did all oh, he did two whole issues of the of that series devoted to Charlton. And one talks about Charlton of the fifties and sixties. Uh, and then another one talked about the 70s and 80s. And they mention that because of the deal that Charlton had with Hanna-Barbera, because they did all the Hanna-Barbera comics, they did Speed Buggy and Scooby-Doo and all, they had the Hanna-Barbera license. There was a moment apparently where because of some weird hiccup in the licensing, Charlton had the opportunity to do a Super Friends comic book because it was a Hanna-Barbera 
property. Wow. Even though they were DC characters. And apparently DC got wind of this and like they were like, oh, no, 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 no. And they jumped in and, you know, managed to carve out an exception. But apparently there was a brief moment, like a week there, where Charlton, if they had known it, could have done a Super Friends comic book. Can you imagine wow. what, a, what a comic book starring Superman and Batman would have looked like? Not by DC Comics? That would have been crazy looking. That's, oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, I never forgot that anecdote. It's like they said everybody in the Charlton offices were like, we could have had Superman for like a month or something. It would have been so cool. Oh, my God. Oh, man, that, that would have created a whole other universe. Yes, absolutely. This weird asterisk, like, well, there is one Superman comic book that was not published by DC Comics. So, But, yeah, I love the Super Friends cartoon. I love the comic book. Uh, if I, again, if I had all the time in the world, I would do a Super Friends comic index show. Because I did love that book, you know. I mean, just drawn by Ramona Fraden. I mean, good lord, well, you can't ask for more than that. Oh, I would be your shag for that. <laughs> That's a good place to end this episode, I would say. Uh, Sean, well, thank you so much, man. You have been uh, a friend to the show and a friend to me for many, many years, and so I'm really glad we have the opportunity to finally talk about this book. It's a really sweet little story, and it's the kind of thing that when we were kids. Um, we you know we didn't have a lot of this nowadays kids have it all over the place you know stuff's just merchandise within an inch of its life but when we were kids you didn't there weren't there wasn't a lot of this kind of stuff so if i had seen this i would have gone crazy i think that's why kids of our generation have so much merchandise because we couldn't own the shows we couldn't watch the shows whenever we wanted to so we had to have physical pieces of merchandise to remind us of the show. Right. You had to have some physical keepsake, some yeah. takeaway. And even if it wasn't necessarily the greatest thing in the world, you still loved it because it was the thing you saw on TV and you got to hold it in your hand and stuff like that. I mean, I, I still remember sitting in front of Super Friends playing with my Migos because it was like, hey, that's the show and I have it in my hand. It's amazing. You know, it was a really cool thing. So. Right. I did the same thing. There you go. So, again, Sean, thank you so much, man, for coming on. I always appreciate talking to you. It's been great fun. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We all hope you have a wonderful – well, I guess by the time you hear this, Thanksgiving will have passed. I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. And for all those of you out there that live outside the USA, and uh, we hope that you celebrate uh, getting together with friends and family in your, in your own way. We like to think here at the network that we've created our own sort of virtual – uh, Thanksgiving dinner table where everybody can hang out and share and things and be friends and stuff like that. So, and we appreciate everybody who listens to the shows and, and comments. And of course you can leave comments on this episode on the website, which is fire and water podcast.com. And you can talk about the book and various other fun things on Twitter at uh, FW podcast. So again, thanks everybody for listening. So until next week, fan the flame and ride the wave. Harvest Batman, good to be out in the country. 
Batman, Robin! Hi, Mr. Brown. Robin and I were hoping we could buy a snack. This is the place to get some great ones. Be my guest. Apples, tomatoes, celery, it all looks good to me. Right, Robin. Fresh fruits and vegetables make some of the best snacks there are. What do we have, Batman? Any of them, Robin, you can't miss. That hits the spot. Better than junk food, Robin.